there were days where you'd look at some of the sections and be like, I don't think that's a good idea to try to do an air on that wavelength. Sea snakes are venomous, not poisonous. So looking like a giant sea snake to a tiger shark, you're just looking at like a, a big dinner. Welcome to The Drop, my name is Danny Johnson and this week we have a scientist on the show. This scientist's name is Daryl McPhee and he specializes in unprovoked shark attacks. Shark attacks have been on the rise globally for some time and every time there's attack, an attack, it, like there was recently on the east coast of Australia in Crescent Head, the opinions start flying around like crazy and things like, you know, why the attacks happen and, and what should be done about them. Confident opinions too from people that are completely uninformed and unqualified to do so. And it ends up in a lot of just bullshit munching basically that, and misinformation. So I wanted to chat to someone that specializes in this area and is considered an expert. I also hit Daryl with some age old theories that I've been hearing my entire life as a surfer. Things like, is pissing in your wetsuit gonna attract sharks? Will letting your dog sleep on your wetsuit get you bitten? Does surfing at dawn or dusk put you at a higher risk? Uh, I also asked him things like whether surfers can actually sense when the conditions are more sharky. Is overfishing a cause of the increase in attacks? What surfers are typically doing the moment they get attacked? Does the presence of dolphins mean that sharks will not be present? Uh, what else? I also asked him about the color yellow and then also people that are putting black and white stripes on their board to deter sharks and whether that works or not. And the answers to these uh, facts, myths, or theories—they uh, might surprise you when you hear a shark attack. Sorry, a shark scientist address them, or they may not. Maybe, maybe you are a shark scientist. But before we get into that, let's do what we do every week, starting last week and forever into the future until one of us dies, uh, potentially by shark bite. We're going to chat to Stab's editor in chief, Mr. Brendan Buckley, on all the week's news. Actually, he. Buck will never die of a shark attack because he lives in France uh, where they've, they've never heard of sharks, apparently. Yeah, sharks, France, nothing that I've ever heard of. Like, uh, what I think of is they killed all the whales here. Like, the Basque are really good at whaling. <laughs> and so they just <laughs> fucked those things up. And for some reason, that in my mind equates to like, well, there can't be sharks somehow because they killed all the whales. It makes no sense at all. No, it does make sense. You don't. He said does that. It? Yeah, the one of the potential reasons that shark attacks are increasing in Australia is the the whale population is actually growing significantly, and they they eat the whales. I think the um, great whites eat the whales, or, or maybe there's associated extra fish traveling with them or something. So that actually does make a lot of sense. Really? Well, I mean, that does kind of seem like a platform. I know things get like weird and. There's big arguments around the call, no call, but I do feel like a lot of Australians could rally around potentially just killing whales, you know? Yeah. Like I do think that could unite both sides maybe <laughs> because who who likes whales, you know? Not the Japanese, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> what happened then? Well, <clears throat> I have no idea. Hmm. All right. Uh, you got to this point where you were like, you don't want to, you don't want to do the sudden change. You want to like maybe cue it up. You cue it up that way. It kind of sneaks up on them at the end of the song they're listening to. Yeah, that's you know? genius. And you, 
you could sneak in some really good stuff too. I do that with a lot of Jack Johnson too. I call it jacking somebody off <laughs> where you just try to like, if you're at a party or something and then, you know, you just kind of try to get a Jack Johnson song by everybody. Cause sometimes, you know, two, three minutes, you can, you can do it at some like kind of mellow barbecues. Like sometimes you get a full Jack Johnson song without anybody looking at you funny. <laughs> Did you ever hear Aussie Wright's quote in some surf mag uh, right around the time Jack Johnson was really peaking? Nah. He said something along the lines of, I'd rather smoke napalm through a bong than listen to a Jack Johnson song. <laughs> and, um, and, and Jack Johnson heard about it and he got, he got asked about it in some interview. Someone was like, oh, surfers love your music. And he was like, no, I don't think so. Not all of them. And um, I remember speaking to Ozzy about it one day because Jack Johnson owns like a place in Byron or something or he's here occasionally. And like Ozzy would see him and want to like, I don't know, maybe he didn't actually say that. Maybe it was like a change quote or something, but he just like, he's always like felt this like weird pressure and he feels like Jack Johnson just sees him and like walks the other way. And he's always trying to like chase after him to like, I don't know, sort of mend this, mend this long, long uh, beef from his comment. That would be heartwarming though, wouldn't it? Just seeing that after all these years. <laughs> what seeing the seeing the the beef get squashed yeah seeing them come together and just be like hey man you know i sorry i said that and he's like hey it's okay like i, I would love to see them make amends really oh, that's only the half of it. speaking of aussie let's talk about lobotomy which is currently on stab site yeah yeah aussie just brings shit into the barrel now which <laughs> is awesome like he literally just brings objects into there man I've been trying to, I was chatting to the guy from GoPro being like, you need to sponsor Aussie. Like he's, I, cause I find it so entertaining and I've chatted to a few people that just don't quite get it in any way, shape or form. But like, it's, it, I feel like it's, it's high art. You know, he's got these like, uh, these foreground objects and he's just putting them into places that most people couldn't. And there's fucking fascinating photos. Oh my God. I was loving watching that. Like, especially when you think about, I don't know how, how else you could express creativity through surfing? Like, what a cool way to approach that. Yeah, Ozzy's been surfing by himself a lot in this like super sharky, coming back to sharks, this super sharky stretch of coast in New South Wales. And and he's there by himself with toys and bananas and, and things just in the, getting chewed with the GoPro, just entertaining no one but himself. I mean, now us, yeah. but at the time, I think he's just... I think he's just doing it because out of boredom because he's got no one to surf with. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's how it started. Maybe he just brought a little doll out there for like, you know, comfort purposes and things evolved from there. Yeah, and what did you think of the film in general? I loved it. Just an unapologetic, good surf film. Mm. I even I loved the little intro and the theme they had too, just kind of making fun of other surf videos. Did you like that? I, I didn't mind the the opening monologue, but the the visual theme, the mime and the dancing, and and that sort of brain theme started to I don't know. At first, I was like, I don't know about this, and then it went on so so long. I was like, wait a minute, maybe this is going on so long now. It's kind of changing my brain, and I started loving it. But then it just started going on even even more than that, and I turned again. I went on a journey with it, but in the end, I I didn't like it. But I love the ah. movie. I love the surfing. Yeah. Was Ozzy's your favorite part? Oh, I don't know. You know what What really stood out to me is I feel like Ozzy's and, and Noah's were particularly entertaining, not just because they were ripping, but they were just doing funny shit. And 
and not that switch surfing is necessarily funny, but I've been wondering when surfing is 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 going to start featuring a lot of like switch and and you know there's been some really famous and classic moments of people getting amazing switch barrels over the years, but no one really does it. And I feel like it's inevitable that it happens. And Noah gets a couple of switch barrels, which I've loved. And then he even does a switch alley-oop. And then he, he, he goes for another like switch air, which is, which is pretty sick. He doesn't, he doesn't make it. And I don't even know if airs is ever the, ever the future, but I feel like really good switch barrels is, is definitely like an untapped zone in surf. And so I was loving, I was loving that section. That was my favorite clip in the movie. The like switch that stuff? little switch. Yeah, yeah, the alley-oop switch yeah. is fucking crazy. Yeah. And I, I mean, know. even if you think back at like, like think about the shit the guys like Christian Fletcher went through, like switch might seem kind of gimmicky now, but in order for it to ever get there, it's going to have to go through that awkward phase, right? Mm. Like just like Ayers had to. And so even if it does like a little bit like, I don't know, token or just whatever now i do think like you said like it's inevitable right like yeah we're gonna have to start figuring it out and if we're gonna start figuring it out it's gonna have to go through that transition and be a little bit weird for a little while and i think we're gonna start seeing that and with at the level that any anyone is even close to a pro surf is that getting barreled is really not difficult and you, you can push the limits and sort of gnarlier and gnarlier waves but another way to mix it up is is kind of try and surf the same waves you would normally and and do it switch and i feel like that makes it way more entertaining that extra challenging element and then being able to transition out of the barrel and and return to a to your regular stance and maybe do a turn or even do switch airs and stuff i feel like it's it's yeah it's definitely coming yeah yeah even like especially when you look at somebody like his surfing like imagine just a big old shove it or something Rides out of it, he's going switch and just rips the rest of the wave. Like, how yeah, cool would that be? Exactly. And then, what else about this movie? I was, I also loved. I actually, you know what? I spoke to someone like a fairly prominent member of the surf community who I'll tell you after the after we finish recording, who was kind of talking down Jack Rubbo's turns just in general, not from this movie at all, and saying that he thought that was like. I mean, I think his his tubes and airs are, are probably his strongest points, but with all the work that Jack's done as a small wave in small waves over, over the recent years, he just thought that Jack wasn't quite there with his turns. And then after watching this movie, I feel like he's off his head because Jack was, was really impressive and particularly on the face doing some pretty huge hacks. Man, that's so funny. That's the other thing I want to call out is that section was incredible. Mm. Like I almost feel like, I almost feel like Jack's been around for so long that he's in that thing where like you're, like imagine if you hadn't ever heard of him before or if he was like just you heard about him in the last few years instead of hearing about him since he was 12. That section would be like like fucking memorable. Like, oh, Jack Robinson is here. But the truth is he's already been here for 10 years so it probably won't be looked at that way. Yeah. But, I mean, it was fucking gnarly, that section. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was, I think it was proper impressive that wave's like an hour and a half from where i grew up and it made me feel and it's even an hour and a half from where i live now and it made me feel so lazy watching watching them rip the shit out of that wave and then i just i've surfed it once in the past year uh that wave has had a year hasn't it i feel like it's been in everything (laughs) it's getting a fair run it's definitely getting a fair run yeah yeah yeah. um anything else notable from lobotomy 
that was uh, those were kind of the three things I want to call out. Ozzy bringing just objects into barrels, no ripping switch, Jack ripping in general, and then Yago. Yago just always is. I'm a goofy foot, so I might be a little bit biased, but also fuck that. He's just an incredible surfer, and anything that he puts out, I'm happy with. Yeah, he's he's so fucked up. He's so lovable too. I just love him. Yeah. And then you know me, I, mean, I was obviously like with my whole background and everything, I was really into um, Birch's longboarding session. I just thought it was really <laughs> soulful. Have you ever ridden a longboard? Not once in my life. Not really? Not never once? Not once. I mean, I've ridden like a soft top, but that's the closest. I've never, I don't think I've caught a wave in my life on like a proper longboard. No. Huh. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't mind jumping on a longboard, but I'd way rather watch Birch Surf or um, any of those other boards. He, he, he typically rides any of the smaller ones because, yeah, longboarding's just, uh, it's not that entertaining. Oh, that's only the half of it. So it happened late last week, but in case you haven't been following, Jordy Smith is out of the Olympics. Um, it's a big deal. It's, it's a bummer. The story is that he has had a nagging injury that was getting worse throughout the Australia leg and then opted for surgery in South Africa. The initial word was that he, that was like an elective surgery and he could possibly make it back for the Olympics, but you know how those things go. Like, don't want to be all tinfoil hat, but it seems like anybody who's getting injured right now is being so mysterious about what exactly happened and what they had done <laughs> with all the like contractual implications with it. And so, yeah, who knows what the real story was there, but he's out and that's a bummer. So do you mean contractual obligations in terms of people's contracts or, or any deals they have hinging on them appearing in the Olympics or, or, or yeah, how, guess, how do the contracts work, factor in? I guess obligation wasn't the right word. It's more potential perks, I guess. Like I think it'd be interesting for a guy like Jordy because it, he was more or less a lock for the Olympics. I think surfers that weren't quite on that level probably have Olympic appearance bonuses worked in that are really kind of juicy. But I think for the top, top guys that you almost know are going to be there, an Olympic appearance probably doesn't mean that much, at least from their main sponsors. And then an Olympic gold or something would mean a lot more. But I don't know if he had any more mainstream deals, but I know that those ones, you get a lot of money even just for showing up as we're seeing with you know, Kaloe and Chipotle and Ralph Lauren getting in the mix with a bunch of surfers. So, so uh, do you, let's let's try and get into the mind of Jordy. Is he potentially faking an injury because he doesn't want to go compete in dribbly conditions in Japan, a COVID-riddled country, then put himself at risk? Or what? What would be the reason he didn't want to compete other than an injury? If you are putting that tinfoil hat on, well, I think the tinfoil hat was more like the initial story of like, okay, the tinfoil hat was about an elective surgery right before the Olympics. Like that just seems like a wild move that I can't wrap my head around. What he said on Instagram was that it, it just, he was doing it for the future of his career. He didn't want to risk further hurting it and losing longevity in his career. But Right now, you know, if it was good enough to surf on all Australia leg and you're going to just kind of opt out right before the Olympics, that just seems a little bit hard to believe for me. 
I, the tinfoil hat would say that maybe it was more of a severe injury that happened on the spot rather than a nagging thing that was like an elective surgery. But like I said, that is all just conspiracy. Uh-huh. Okay. When John, John and Kolohe were both injured, I mean, they're both coming back now, but when it was really unsure there, I talked to the U.S. surf teams coach, Brett Simpson, about it. It's like, hey, would you have like say in, as to whether or not those guys could surf? Like, because you wouldn't want... You, know, you wouldn't want somebody that you know can't surf, that you know whose knee is just broken to show up and be like, no, no, I'm good, because that's going to hurt the team, right? But apparently it's just entirely up to the surfers. Like they earn their spot there. So in theory, you could show up just mangled and be like, nah, I'm out there and just try to like <laughs> stand up and not blow out your knee even more. But it doesn't seem like anybody's actually doing that. So, What other things did you glean from Brett Simpson? When I talked to him, it was right in that time when the John and Chloe injuries were a really big deal. And it really seemed like, and it really seemed unlikely that both those guys would be in Japan. And so it was about the process of how, you know, the, who would take their spot and how, because, you know, I'm sure in 10 years we'll, we'll have been through this a few times and we'll kind of be more familiar with the process like we are with the WSL now. But since it's surfing's first Olympics, I think everybody's still really confused about how pretty much the entire thing works. So my conversation was focused on that with him. Yeah, okay. Um, Talking about how they were going to break the news to Kelly, who's just been hovering around uh, like a vulture, just licking his chops, waiting for Kolohe or John John to slip out of the team. I know, I know, poor guy. <laughs> It almost seems he's healed up now. He, I mean, everyone's, I mean, and by everyone, I mean me and what I assume at least a couple of other people are doing is, is waiting for this off ramp or this exit ramp that Kelly's going to take to end his career. And an appearance at the Olympics probably wouldn't do it, but a win at the Olympics definitely would. I don't know if that seems far fetched, especially when the conditions are potentially going to be really small. But that's clearly not going to happen now. It looks like John, John and Chloe are going to be competing and part of the American team for the Olympics. So when and how is Kelly going to, you know, find that off ramp? I don't know. Maybe it'd be cool if he just like made it his goal to just not do that at all. Like try to be 60 and like get back on the queue if he wants. And like that'll be kind of his, his legacy is like no such fucking thing. I'm going to compete till the day I die. I don't like, imagine if he's doing QS events at like, 75 just still trying to beat people that are 60 years younger than him like i think that would be the sickest round oh, that's actually. what i hope happens i'm so less interested in every event that kelly's not in as soon as he's in an event i, I i'm just infinitely fascinated re- regardless of whatever capacity he's at to surf just because of his personality and competitiveness but i do think there is something about dying young and leaving a good looking corpse like marilyn monroe did that immortality like there will be something that eventually starts to affect kelly's legacy no matter how many billions of world titles he's won if he is kicking around in small surf like a geriatric on the qs trying to win heats it's going to be hard and and people are watching that with everyone else is surfing far surpassing him at that point it is going to be hard for anyone who wasn't alive during his heyday to really imagine how many leaps and bounds he was above people you know he won't he won't have that he won't have that untouchable legacy i guess so but i mean what's the best case scenario then like 
absolute best case, wins another world title somehow. See you guys later. Bye-bye. I'm going to go. And then he, you know, every now and then he shows up at surf events. It's like a special thing. It's like, oh, my God, it's Kelly. You know, a step down from that, maybe he wins Tahiti or something and firing waves. And, like, that's his goodbye. Same thing. Just kind of shows up every now and then. He's like this immaculate thing. That would just be so predictable and boring. Yeah, yeah. I, I want him on the QS when he's 75 <laughs> at like fucking two stars grinding away. Just really like maybe just some horrible PR thing happens to him. And he has to like live with that too. And he's just kind of this, this guy that's still there. That's what I want for him because the other thing would just be boring and predictable. He's been pretty squeaky clean given the amount of time he's spent in the spotlight. So yeah, some some nasty P, PR stuff could be could be an interesting new <laughs> new feature to his career. Oh, the, the Challenger series just got locked in. So four events will decide next year's new crop of CT surfers, which has been called obviously with the pandemic, but the four events will be the US Open in Hindin, an event in Arisera, Portugal, one here in France and one in Haleiwa. So no sunset this year. At least, uh, well, Sunset will be on the CT, but no Sunset deciding the crop of new CT surfers for 2022. And how do you feel about it? The first thing that comes to mind is for so long, the the Quicksilver Pro France has been here and it's been like, it's something that's like almost worked into the fabric of like how everything works here, at least in surfing. Like it is the end of the surf season doesn't matter the dates. It's just like that is kind of like the last hurrah, last party. The town gets really busy. After that, it goes full ghost town. Like it needed that last thing to shut down. And so I'm really curious to see what happens now with it being just a challenger series event instead of the full CT. Because, And I'm honestly curious to see how the everyday kind of French spectator interacts with it. Like I don't think they'll fucking realize, to be honest with you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they might not even know the the you know the, the different type of event. That's fascinating. I mean, obviously the crew who surf here will know the big difference, but like, you know, when it was a CT, the beach would crowd with like thousands of people and a lot of them like don't really know surfing. One of the most fascinating things is they really like kickouts. Like if you're on the beach at the Pro France, like and somebody just like kicks out of a wave and happens like it just like jumps off their board and goes real high, that's like the loudest applause that you'll hear. Yeah, they love just like weird <laughs> shit like that. So if we just get a bunch of challengers fucking doing dolphin dives off the back, then I think they'll still get just as revved up. Yeah. What about the Challenger series in general? Because I haven't properly understood the WSL's new approach. I've, I've sort of understood it, um, yeah, you know, on some varying degree. But until I read that article, uh, I've, I really understand how they're approaching the different tiers to the tour. And I love it. It's something about compartmentalizing it up into regional regional events and then the Challenger Series and then whoever, you know, is able to be successful there will end up on on the CT and then the CT is the main event. It, to me, it's just such a, an amazing and positive new structure for, for everyone. Everyone wins, surfers, the viewers. It's it, To me, it's just it's the best. There's, there's so much change to competitive surfing all the time, but this one is far and away the best the best um, adaptation to the tour. I agree with you. I agree with you. Overall, I think it's great. And I think it does exactly what they wanted to do, which is make it 
kind of easier and cheaper and you don't have to travel around the world to qualify or around the world chasing you know small events to work a seat up and qualify and i think it makes the main events the challenger series ones like you know i'll actually tune in now but one thing i noticed in the article we put on the site is that hopefully it you know change always happens but if this format sticks around things will hopefully look a lot different in 10 20 years but one thing that looked a little bit like almost a not quite a flaw in it but i found interesting was if you look at it now since so it's all broken into the regions right you look at asia's rankings everybody's japanese you look at africa's rankings everybody's south african and so i hope in the future you'll see more diversity in those but for now it's just like oh so you're kind of just giving south africa its own thing or you're kind of giving japan its whole thing where again hopefully these, these entire continents will produce more surfers in the future but seeing it as it is now seemed like it would benefit surfers from certain nations more than others you know those nations that are powerhouses within their regions yeah so. i did have that same thought it could end up unintentionally i'm sure i don't think this is is their plan but it could unin unintentionally end up with a lower caliber of surfer on the CT just by the way it sort of bottlenecks in those regions and it, it squashes a few, some people out and then those other regions that are less competitive, uh, it's a bit of a walk in the park. I wonder if any any surfers, say from Australia, will relocate to those regions where it's potentially easier to, or like or America, uh, relocate to those regions where it's potentially easier to, to qualify under the Challenger Series. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if we see some of that, at least in the first like few years where, you know, maybe that'll be a thing that even needs to get addressed down the line, but it's really not a bad call. Mm, who do you think's the weakest nation? Where would you move if you were still uh, still chasing those QS points, Buck? Oh, that's a good one. I mean, it's so like, honestly... Europe has had, like, other than Jeremy Flores, <clears throat> now we have, well, now Leonardo Fioravanti as well. But historically, Europe has been one of the weakest, like, competitive surfing continents. But then again, like, people here are grindy. Like, it's very, I think the mindset here in general is a little bit more of surfing being a sport than it is in Australia and probably America as well. And so doing the, the QS here would be, oh, That'd be that'd be pretty hectic. Another big announcement is the Van Stab High, presented of course by Monster Energy, which was filmed in Costa Rica. We just announced that that's coming. That's and, coming very soon. And you were down there for a couple of weeks. Can you give everyone uh, a sense of what what the energy was like down there? What the what the the contest was, and 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 the kind of waves you guys scored. Organized chaos, beautiful organized chaos. I mean, we had 18 male surfers there, six ladybirds, 12 days, and really, really waves that range from really good to just really fun right out in front of where everybody is staying with pretty much nobody out. Wow. And there were days where you'd look at some of the sections and be like, I don't think that's a good idea to try to do an air on that wave. Like it was big and just really solid. 
And then there are days where it's just like the most skate parky, playful, kind of you can get techie, do whatever you want. And so we had this crazy range of waves and it was incredible. I mean, when you have that many people there, there's going to be somebody in the water doing something pretty much around the clock, right? And that was the case. And it was so much good surfing. And so I think that's probably why it's packing down into five episodes. Nice. The first of which, yeah. First one's coming Thursday, July 22nd. And then I think it's every Thursday from there on out for five weeks. But yeah, there's there's so much good surfing. That's, I can't wait to see the first app. Yeah, so Stab High started in the pool and then the plan was always eventually to head to the ocean. And the first one, first one in the ocean was Van Stab High presented by Moss Energy, non-chlorine edition, which was in Indonesia last year. This year we're on, we're back in the ocean again in Costa Rica. What do you think the surfers prefer? Do you think they prefer an, an air comp at a really contained environment like the pool where they can get extra tech or do you think they love letting loose and trying to find the media sections they can in the unpredictable ocean so i think i think at least when it comes to this event the pool will always have that like you know you get that ability to just run it as a proper event and have a big party and get everybody together and it's just this condensed like in the moment thing and so I think there's always going to be value in that. And I think we're going to go back there. But with this trip, I think, I think surfers would love that event energy, but I think they'd also love the idea of being able to approach it as like, okay, I have 10 days. I know I need to do this. I know I need to do that. Like I, I, I think they'd gravitate towards that side of it. But then again, like I said, the, the energy of an event, you can't really beat. But I think in, in terms of just surfing and enjoying the, that experience, this would be hard to beat because it's just go and have a fun surf trip and land a few good airs. All right. Well, that's all we got this week. So Lobotomy is playing on stabmag.com for premium members for a little while longer before it's set free to the public. Is that right, Buck? Is it being set free? It is being set free next week. All right, and so I guess everyone should stay high, uh, stay high, stay tuned for the first episode of Band Stab High presented by Moss Energy this Thursday. Yeah, get high too if you want to. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Big, Mr. Dick, Mr. Power Surfer, Brendan Buckley, Stabs editor filling us in with all the news there. Next up, we have scientist Brian McPhee. And so Brian's bio goes a little something like this. It, it reads, Professor Darren McPhee is head of high degree research at Bond University. His core expertise is in fisheries and marine ecology. Dr. McPhee has published over 90 reports and publications. He's internationally recognized as a leader in fisheries management research and is one of the most well-published researchers of recreational fishing in Australia. Much of his recent work is focused on the understanding and mitigating of unprovoked shark bites on people and the environmental history of Australian coastal areas. And I really enjoy this chat. Scientists operate in, in that grace gray space, the, the world of nuance and evidence. Uh, they're reluctant to say anything unless there's quality evidence, evidence to suggest that what they're saying is, is, is validated and true. And so for that reason, there's no high octane flamethrower opinions in this article, but Daryl, he won't make a comment unless it can be backed up by some evidence. So the things that he does say, uh, that there's a reason for it. Love's got 
sharks is you use um, the quite specific phrase unprovoked attacks. Yes. And it made me realise I don't actually remember ever hearing about provoked attacks. Like, do, do they happen? Do they happen often? They happen very regularly, but they tend not to happen to surfers. So if you're obviously focusing on surfing and surf culture, so provoked attacks uh, often uh, involve divers. Uh, so, for instance, there's one at Lizard Island where somebody was snorkeling and taking some GoPro footage whilst the people on the boat were feeding fish, uh, and then, of course, sharks came. Uh, there are a number of uh, bites and fatalities in Egypt from where a tourist operator started legally provisioning sharks to come around and sort of feed the sharks. Uh, and then they stopped doing it, but people went in the water and the sharks were expecting food. Right. People have patted sharks on the head. So there's a range of, uh, they often involve people feeding them and then being surprised at the outcome. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what would consider something to be provoked uh, for, from a surfer's point of view? So for instance, if a surfer went and jumped on a shark, for example, which has happened, surfing out to a whale carcass uh, and then jump, getting on the whale car- car- carcass and then jumping in the water. Whilst the white sharks are feeding. Whoa. <laughs> Which has happened. <laughs> Psychos out there. Um, well, hey, so I read in your research, uh, in one of your articles, that it says that shark bites globally are definitely on the rise. And then there's, um, you said, a, a threefold increase since 1982. Can we determine why we're seeing this increase with any certainty? Uh, a lot of issues with um, sharks and unprovoked shark bites. There's no one causal factor. Uh, we know over time there's been an increasing in the number of people, an increase in the number of people in the water. Uh, there's also been an increase in the footprint of people uh, in the water. So people are going to more and more remote locations. Uh, so it's a range of uh, it's a range of factors. We have an increased food supply too on the Australian east coast um, for white sharks. So we're very certain that the number of humpback whales uh, is increasing. You see more and more whales uh, in more and more places uh, as their population grows. And our population of coastal fish is very healthy. And in the case of Australian salmon, uh, it's probably increased over that period because there's no cannery for them uh, anymore. But there's no one factor. Mm, okay. And I heard you mention to the press that you're more likely to drown at the beach than be killed by a shark. If you were to recalculate the maths on these, on, on whatever stats you use to come up with, um, with, that, with that idea, and, and say, for example, you were able to recalculate it in a way where you're only going to include competent surfers from a known shark zone like Ballina, and, you know, so the surfers using a flotation device, they're experienced in the water, they're less likely, I would, I would think, to drown uh, than, say, an international tourist who's unfamiliar with the ocean. And then there are also people that are spending a lot of time in the water, say five to 10 hours a week if they're a frequent surfer, which increases their risk of being attacked. Do you think, do you think those, those statements, when you break it down to sort of individual case studies, start to look pretty different? Or are you still, do you still think that shark attacks are, are super anomalies? Um, so that's a good question, Danny. And there's a couple of things to unpack there. One of the components of, of fearing of shark attack uh, is that mitigating it is actually out, largely out of your control when you go in the water. So you know to mitigate uh, the risk of drowning, you become a better swimmer. To mitigate the risk uh, of a shark bite if you're a surfer is not becoming a better surfer. Uh, in fact, it's the opposite, as you've uh, touched on. You're spending more time in the water. So the more you surf, uh, the more at risk you are, but it's still an extremely low risk. Most injuries from surfing, most serious injuries, uh, most acute injuries, uh, are just from physical 
injuries in the surf. So you actually much greater chance of actually having a life-changing injury in the surf in the absence of a shark. And that can include losing an eye, uh, broken neck, uh, et cetera. So we can park all the minor issues of, of uh, grazes, abrasions, et cetera. You're still at a greater risk of just in the act of surfing. In a way, essentially you're painting this picture that it's it's not something that we should be uh, so concerned. And I'm wondering if, if do you surf? Uh, no, I'm a fisherman. Okay, right. If you were a surfer, given the knowledge you have around how prevalent these shark attacks are, would you surf fearlessly or, or would you at least on an intellectual level choose to ignore the risk of shark attack given how infrequent they are? Uh, if I was a surfer, I'd keep surfing. Uh, I'd wear a, um, a shark deterrent, an individual shark deterrent that's been independently tested. And there are sometimes uh, and some instances that I would avoid, so-called sharky times. are probably not a surfing myth. There is some reality there in, in quite a few instances. What are they? Are they dawn, dusk, after rain, river mouths? Are, are there any I'm missing there or are any of those wrong? Well, that's a, um, that's a couple. So it's very clear, don't swim at dawn and dusk. Uh, however, uh, when you unpack the statistics, it actually, you don't get a strong correlation between swimming at dawn and dusk uh, and surf bites. And that's happened in, in Australia where I've looked at the data and also others have looked at reunion uh, as well. So there is swimming in floodwaters near river mouths as a risk uh, and just swimming with bait fish, for example. So there's a good photo from Lennox Head uh, after a, uh, a couple of shark bites there and there were people surfing. There was a lot of bait fish in the water. So bait fish are one of the key factors. There were sharks in that bait fish. So people were, uh, were surfing. Uh, at an area where there'd been uh, shark bites that week and sharks were still present. And so when you see a bait ball or, you know, like like you can see them from a fair distance sometimes, would you clear the water if you see them in any way, shape or form while you're surfing or is it, do they have to be somewhat near the, the, the place that you're actually surfing? If there's large bait balls around, and particularly if there's um, probably more than one, so if there's a series of fish moving through, nine times out of ten sharks will be around there somewhere. Then it comes down to what species of shark um, and their size. Yeah? Um, if it's a one-metre black-tip whaler, for example, keep surfing. Um, it's not a, yeah. Um, in the off chance that you get bitten, um, you're probably dealing with, for example, six or eight stitches. So it's a minor injury. Yes, discomfort, unpleasant, uh, but it's not life-changing. That's actually most of the bites in Florida uh, are from small sharks to the, uh, that are minor bites from the knee down. So there's a lot of black tip whalers there. Yeah, okay. And so part of the reason I wanted to, to chat to you is I've heard uh, a really sort of evidence-based, rational uh, approach to talking about sharks, which is kind of the opposite you get post-shark attack. We've just had another attack in Crescent Head a few days ago. And those opinions, those those reactions uh, are being sprouted around everywhere. And, I, and I'd love to know from you, when you uh, come across any of these opinions on on what we need to do or, or the reasons for these attacks, what do we, what do we often get wrong? Um, look, it's that they're tragic events for the individuals involved um, and their, their families and friends. And also it has a flow on effect, as you're well aware, to the surfing community in general. So you see this visceral uh, response and that response uh, c- covers the full gamut to let's kill all the sharks through to it's the shark's domain. Uh, they're part of 
part of surfing, part of our surf culture. It's when you get the series of bites that things get, they build up ahead of steam. So the series of bites at Ballina, for instance, was uh, very significant. So it's the wrong time to be making any decisions, but it's the time that governments are pushed to make decisions ASAP. Yeah, okay. And is there anything you hear that you just think that's patently wrong or that there's no evidence for that for that theory? Oh, yes, there's a uh, there's many of them. Uh, so one is it's safe to go in the water surfing or swimming uh, if there's dolphins in the water because dolphins scare away sharks. Oh, no so way. I always thought that was a, that was uh, some like weird arrangement they had because they kind of look similar. So they were just, you know, like <laughs> they didn't want to show up in, in the same place wearing the same outfit. <laughs> sharks eat marine mammals, so uh, yeah. in the case of whites. So, so again, it doesn't guarantee if you see dolphins, there's sharks around, but if you see dolphins, it doesn't guarantee that there are no sharks. Hmm. Um, so that's one. There's obviously, uh, and I understand the uh, I understand the confusion. There's always, a, particularly amongst surfers, a, a variety of responses and, and views in terms of shark deterrence. Some demonstrably probably don't work. Some haven't been independently tested. Uh, and then there's the electric deterrence, which have been tested uh, a number of times, and there's a couple of different responses. Well, that's good to know. I'm gonna I'm gonna hit you with some now and try and get your response to them. One of the big ones that comes up, uh, particularly in Australia, is that great whites were protected in, in 1999. And the increase in shark attacks we're seeing now, 22 years on, is simply a result of these sharks growing up and, and, and I don't know, there being more of them or, or whatever you can assume from, from the fact that they're now protected within Australia. That's, uh, that's frequently stated. It's very complex. The flaw in what happens uh, back in their protection is we don't know how many there were. Uh-huh. Uh, so they're protected without any knowledge of however many were, beyond the fact that there weren't very many. They're not, uh, they're not an abundant animal. So we have no baseline to detect uh, their population trends. You can certainly make the conclusion that we know in terms of incidental capture, it's basically only shark control programs these days that, uh, that result in mortality of white sharks. There's no commercial fishery for them. Recreational fishermen either, uh, game fishermen either actively avoid them or do uh, release them. So there's no bringing sharks back and hanging off the gantry at Coffs Harbour, for example, um, anymore. That's, that practice is long gone. So you'd expect in response to that reduced fishing pressure, uh, that is highly plausible that the number uh, has increased, but it's still low. But the available evidence doesn't suggest one way or the other whether the population has increased uh, or decreased. Right. So just that protection alone doesn't necessarily guarantee a, a greater number of, of whites, for example. Doesn't guarantee it, no. Huh. But would you assume that it, that it, that it would be? Uh, if it hasn't, the conservation legislation has failed. <laughs> uh, because specifically, uh, this team was designed to potentially increase their number. Yeah. Okay. As to, it was to a range of things. White sharks are the only animal where taxpayers pay to uh, potentially increase the number, but also pay to decrease the number. We pay twice. Oh, really? Huh. Just uh, through shark control programs, yeah doesn't sound like it's a really simple equation to try and work out but it also sounds like there's a there's a, a chance that that could be a, a could be a factor in why there's more attacks am i reading that right it, it could be one of the contributing factors but it's not the magic explanation for uh for what happens there's still a very significant uncertainty as to what the trends in shark population white shark population numbers are over time okay and similar to, similar to this i've also heard you mention that culling doesn't necessarily, it isn't proven 
to reduce shark attacks in any way. Can you explain what what you mean by that a little bit? Because my understanding is less shark, culling would definitely mean less sharks and less sharks would mean less attacks. Is that is that too simplistic a, a logic to apply to this? Again, purely from a, uh, a scientific perspective, is that ethically you can't do the the experiment, if you uh, for want of a better term, to demonstrate the effectiveness because you can't physically put people at risk. But just in the sense of less sharks, I mean, a, a, a major cull where almost all of them were killed would have to leave, lead to less attacks, I'm assuming. But culling, if we didn't care about anything else other than reducing unprovoked shark attacks, would have to reduce attacks, right? If culling was, um, was socially acceptable, if it was expanded uh, and the shark numbers were significantly reduced at areas where people are, uh, are using, you would expect to see the number of bites fall. And what about what, when you hear people calling for culls and things like that, uh, you obviously have a, an understanding of marine life and, and marine ecology so much broader than, than just considering unprovoked shark attacks. What, what sort of things do you think about when you think about people calling for a cull? You're right. So calls, calls of culls um, after a bite are inevitable um, and there'll be an article in the Australian, no doubt, uh, in the not-too-distant future as there always is after a shark bite. I think about the, I guess, the impracticality of it in a short period of time that it's not really yeah, going to work in the, uh, in the short term for people that propose it. It's a very short-term solution. Uh, it's not socially acceptable. The information is very clear is that uh, through time we've, we're pretty much finished saving the dolphins and we're pretty much finished saving the whales and so now we're moving on to saving the sharks. When governments, for, for, for instance, the previous West Australian government proposed culls, it was met with um, much more significantly more backlash uh, than they expected. The broader ecological impacts are the fact that sharks are part of uh, they are part of the marine environment. They're either the apex predator or pretty close to it, depending on the species. So it would have impacts uh, on the food chain. There's also the ethical issue is it's not our right as humans just to decide which animals survive and don't. Mm-hmm. For sure. And some people that eat factory farmed meat, um, which involves animals suffering and being, not being able to live out their, you know, just natural instincts and, and desires um, during their lifespan and, and sort of basically live in suffering and then get killed for food. Um, is, there, is there a difference in, in conflating those two? Like to, to be concerned about sharks and then to be or not concerned about animals on land that we, that we mistreat? Uh, that's an interesting one. Um... We view sharks very differently and we actually view marine animals very differently than, than we do with uh, animals uh, on land. And when we're dealing with uh, farm animals, we're also dealing with food and nutrition, which we don't necessarily always have when we're dealing with the ethics, for example, of marine animals. So the two are very, uh, the two are very different. All right. I'm going to keep hitting you with some shark myths or potentially not myths. Uh, another one you hear quite often is that overfishing is what's causing sharks to look for food elsewhere. Uh, that seems like a drastically oversimplified understanding of what's happening, or maybe it's not. What, what would you say to that? Uh, yeah, that's a common myth and it's false. So the food, some of the key food resources for white sharks, for example, humpback whales uh, have increased. We're very clear on that. Coastal fish resources have either been fished sustainably and there's still lots there, or in the case of Australian salmon, uh, on the east and the west coast, their numbers are very uh, the numbers are very large. 
much larger than uh, at least the last 20 or 30 years. So there's plenty of food. Sharks in response to a lack of food potentially don't, will just start to move around. So they'll find the food resources. So there's no strong link between uh, fisheries uh, and shark bite. That's interesting. And then you, you touched on this one earlier, and this is something that's come up ever since I was super young, is that people, without necessarily believing it, will always talk about whether or not conditions seem sharky and people will leave the ocean sometimes when conditions seem sharky. And obviously river mouths might feel sharky, but I don't think that's kind of what we're talking about when we when we use the expression sharky. We're, we're generally talking about no one around, overcast, maybe a little bit of extra chop in the ocean, all these what would seem superficial factors that don't have anything to do with what's going on underneath the, the surface of the ocean. Is there a way to sense how sharky conditions are? No, there's no, uh, apart from a couple of things. So as I said, whilst I'm not a surfer, I'm a fisherman, so some days just feel fishier than others when you're at the, uh, about to, when you get there. Um, you expect to, and other times don't, you expect to see life, uh, more or less life around. So it's just, yeah, are there a lot of birds around, are there a lot of dolphins, sort of bait fish, cloudy overcast conditions where you've just got less visibility as well. Fish might be in closer, a bit more active. Uh, the swell might be right, so there's migratory fish closer to the beach, for example, Taylor, for example. And sometimes they also co-occur with, with good surfing conditions. So, for instance, when, a, uh, when you get the, the remnants of a, uh, a decent westerly blow, for example, when the, the wind's dropped off but the surf's, the surf's up a bit, uh, it's also when you, you expect to find a, a bit of migratory fish uh, in the ocean as well. So in a, in a nutshell, if, as a surfer, if your gut feeling is it's a bit sharky, it's probably a bit sharky in your local area if you've surfed it for a long time. No way. I'm surprised to hear you uh, to, to say that, yeah, there's some potential merit to, to that feeling. I was expecting you to just completely, as a scientist, disregard that. That's, uh, that's fascinating. Uh, it's most, mostly linked to that bait and, and fish present uh, and lower light levels of, of some description. Having said that, though, there's been bites uh, and serious ones in the middle of, you know, 10, 12 o'clock on, on the middle of a sunny day. Uh, and that's the ones where the press are able to chase uh, a shark around in shallow water with a, with a helicopter photographing, videoing it. So, Yeah, I guess there's probably more people. That could just be simply uh, more people surfing in the middle of the day. So that one's... Doesn't really tell us much, my guess would be. And yeah. then another thing I wanted to ask you about is uh, drum lines and meshing. People talk about drum lines and meshing like they are the ultimate solution. Uh, but you don't necessarily think that. Is that is that true? They're part of the historic mix uh, of shark control activities in New South Wales uh, and Queensland. Um, they generally have bipartisan government support from both uh, major parties. They will remain part of the solution probably for a long time, but, but certainly in both states, they've certainly looked at reducing uh, the impacts uh, on non-target species from those, particularly in Queensland, looking at replacing nets with drum lines uh, and continuing to trial alternative methods. So, so they're part of the mix. Uh, whether people like it or not, they'll probably be part of the mix for a while until we get some better, more reliable and more practical methods. Do you know from the data or even just anecdotally, is there anything that surfers are typically doing when they're bitten? Are they paddling? Are they sitting on their board? Is there anything, is there anything consistent about, about a surfer's behaviour as it relates to unprovoked attacks? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. That's part of a, uh, a current analysis I'm doing where I'm sort of parking all the issues regarding diving and snorkeling and other things and just focusing on shark bites on surfers. At this stage, it generally looks like they're just in the lineup waiting to catch a wave. 
But if they're spending most of their time in the lineup, that's actually statistically when you'd expect to see a bite because it's the activity that's uh, they're doing the most, potentially. So it's probably just out the back waiting for a wave is the, the riskier time. Oh, well, that's not something surfers are probably going to be willing to, um, to to change. So that's probably useless no, no, to that's us. Part of it. Yeah, that's, that's one of those things you can't mitigate. That's just part of the part of the activity. Yeah, okay. And what about pissing in wetsuits? That's one that comes up a lot. Uh, every well, majority of people actually will piss in their wetsuits, and uh, I heard once that maybe juvenile sharks are intrigued by that. Is there is there any truth, or do we know whether sharks are actually interested by the smell of urine? Uh, sharks, um, I suspect it's another urban myth. Probably doesn't hurt. <laughs> probably doesn't help. There's obviously a lot of focus on how sensitive sharks are to smells and odors. Um, However, um, at a large spatial range, it's actually not a sense they have that, that they rely on. So I'm not convinced um, that uh, it's going to make any difference one way or the other. Mm, okay. That's an interesting one. I've got another one for you. I, I heard an anecdote once that this guy lived in South Australia. He used to let his dog sleep on his wetsuit and he was attacked, I think, multiple times and the second time actually died. This anecdote has been through hundred hands. So I, I have no idea if how true that is, but is there any truth that they're particularly interested in the smell of dogs? Um, no, I've heard variations of that. Um, I'm sure if we trace back the anecdote, uh, we'd find some common people between us who's, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, who passed it on. Um, again, I'm not convinced that they are recognize the smell of, uh, the smell of dog and are particularly attracted, particularly attracted to it. There's some other urban myths that I've encountered. So there's a, a very good surfer at Reunion who swears by his board. He's, he's painted broccoli underneath it because he swears that sharks don't eat broccoli. <laughs> he know, he's not serious, but he, nonetheless, he does have a board with broccoli painted underneath yeah, it. Yeah, okay. Well, what about yummy yellow? That seems to have some sort of empirical evidence associated with it, as inconclusive as that may be. Yummy yellow seems to be... Uh, something that comes up a lot is do you know or do you have any information on on whether sharks are attracted to the color of yellow um sharks see sharks, sharks don't see color so they see in, in uh, black and white in contrast uh yellow is used for marine safety because it, it creates a, a great contrast so life jackets aren't camouflage color for example they're bright yellow um so it, to a degree it increases the visual profile um, of a board so it's at a higher contrast compared to yes. other colours yep. or shades because of yes. um, it's complementary to the blues that it surrounds. Okay. And what about the black and white stripes? This is huge. A lot of surfers in Western Australia are requesting that their boards be sprayed with black and white sh- uh, stripes. And the theory is either that black and white stripes uh, represent sea snakes and sharks don't eat sea snakes. uh, That's a tongue twister. Eat sea snakes. And then the other one that I've heard is that the division of space actually confuses the shark and they're unable to get a read on the 3D object so they'll be less interested to attack. Either of those true or any of those true? There's two things there. Um, To tackle the the easier one, um, and I've heard both of them before, tiger sharks eat sea snakes. Oh, it's no. part of their favourite food. Oh, no. Um, sea snakes are venomous, not poisonous. So looking like a giant sea snake to a um, uh, to a tiger shark, you're just looking at like a, uh, a big dinner. Mm. That said, however, 
that contrasting black and white uh, certainly has the potential, uh, and I suspect it does, to reduce that visual profile uh, at certain times. So if you're in an area that is potentially, there's going to be a lot of tiger sharks around, maybe a bad idea, but if you're yep. in an area with, say, whites or other species, then it's, it's a good idea based on what we know yeah, so far. Yeah, uh, just look at that visual uh, just look at that visual profile and optimizing it to uh, to the local surf conditions. Mm, okay, so it's not the it's not the worst option. It might not help, but it's certainly not going to not going to harm. In most cases, 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 in most cases. Thanks, Daryl. And that's all we got for this week. Both mine and Buck's emails are in the episode description if you'd like to make some comments or ask some questions or even just suggest some topics that you'd like us to cover in the show. And there's also links to the stories that we've covered uh, in this app in that episode description. So thank you for listening and see you next week. In the last couple of years in Australia, the shark attacks, the number of shark attacks hasn't shark, shark up. Sorry. Uh, in Australia over the last couple of years, the number of unprovoked shark bites hasn't necessarily increased substantially. But what we've seen is that we've seen uh, an increase in fatalities and a number of serious uh, a number of serious bites, like the very recent one at Crescent Head. So